Welcome to another Cardinals Off Day. This is the uh, April 16th Cardinals Off Day. Uh, the Cardinals are 6-6 six and six as of right now. They're on pace to go 81-81. and 81. Uh, In yesterday's game, they lost 6 to nothing to the Washington Nationals. Uh, ben, anything to say about yesterday's game? Well, the... Uh... The Cardinals kind of came down off of their sugar high, I guess, uh, where they, you know, dismantled the Nationals, and then they ran with a getaway day lineup, and Yavi's 2000th uh, game caught as a major leaguer and as a Cardinal. Uh, The first catcher to do that for one team reached the 2000 threshold, and it was neat and a lot of fun at the beginning with Wainwright and Yachty and the tip of the cap, and also on Instagram seeing Yachty's 2000th game Uh, what amounts to a birthday cake. Uh, Someone baked Yachty a cake and they got candles for 2000. And it looked like he had turned 2000 years old, Um, (laughs) but it was for his 2000th game, which was also fun. Uh, And it's a good thing that we have this milestone to celebrate because there wasn't much to celebrate in the game. Uh, The Cardinals. No, it was pretty much, yeah, a a, kind of half-ass getaway day game after that. It really felt like like a June getaway game, not an early April one in that way where, you know, the teams had planes to catch and the umpires had uh, dinner reservations or maybe planes to catch themselves. So it, it was not a very uh, great game of baseball. Um, and the Cardinals really did have a vibe like they were just wanting to go home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think Lane Thomas wanted to go back to Saugat, Illinois is what it looked like to me. So, uh, so Ben, uh, what do you feel like you've learned in this uh, last week since the last off day? Um, well, we've learned a few things. Um, I think we've learned that, uh, there is a red light flashing on the dashboard of Andrew Miller. Um, his velocity is not where it needs to be. Um, and that could be another difficult choice, uh, for the team down the road here in a little bit if things don't get better for him. Um, and I also think that we have learned uh, Mike Schilt uh, is willing to give Matt Carpenter uh, an opportunity so long as he continues to make good contact. Yeah, yeah. No, those are those are two good ones. Um, uh, you know, a, a reliever note uh, of mine that I feel like we've learned, um, you know, we came into this year and I think there was a lot of talk about Jordan Hicks is back. Is Jordan Hicks going to be reinstalled as closer? When's Jordan Hicks going to be the closer? And I think that Jordan Hicks is now Seth Manus. I think that's how they're using him. And um, I actually think that's probably a pretty good way to use him. Um, They have similarities, of course, in that they're just, you know, sinker ballers who get a lot of ground balls. And Hicks is just such an unusual pitcher because he throws with that insanely high velocity but he just does not get that many strikeouts he really is almost if you set aside the velocity he, he he's I think closer to a Seth Manus than he is certainly like an Aroldis Chapman or somebody else who throws with with that kind of velocity so um you know and of course they have a lot of good options in the bullpen as well so it's not to say that you know Hicks is a, a bad pitcher or necessarily worse than we thought he was but um you know, just something I've, I've noticed, and I think um, it'll be interesting to see how that goes going forward. The other just quick note I had is, uh, 
if I could pull a Dennis Green, they are who we thought they were. They're six and six. They're on pace to go 81 and 81. Um, you know, the projection systems, which you know, many of us were surprised were a little low on them, had them around 500. And that's kind of, you know, that's where they're playing so far. So um, I still think over time, this team will evolve and maybe add and, 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 you know, be better than that. I, I think they'll win more than 85 games, but um, you know, it's, it's going to be a grind and uh, you know, a little game here, a little game there when you're 81 and 81 really adds up. So, um, so with that, do you want to, you want to turn to kind of talking about the rotation? Yeah. Uh, the rotation is in flux and in our, earlier episodes, we've talked about how, yes, the Cardinals have pitching depth, but they did not want to dip into that depth on opening day. They have depth if they're able to get the minor leaguers going and get them into the starting groove, um, and then they'll be able to dip into that depth in a more effective way. And we've seen that play out uh, with Daniel Ponce de Leon, frankly, looking like something less than a quadruple A player, which is what I have consistently described him as. Um, his control and command has been bad, uh, and his pitching has been bad. And he got lit up uh, by the Nats after getting uh, lit up by the Brewers, and he is looking fringier by the day if if he's not injured. And so uh, what they have now is they have Kim getting ready to come off of the injured list and rejoin the rotation. The team has already announced that is bumping Daniel Ponce de Leon out of the rotation and into the bullpen where he appeared uh, in this most recent series. Um, But I wonder uh, if he will be used in anything other than mop-up duty out of the bullpen. Well, yeah, I I do too. And I honestly wonder if he can even be effective in mop-up duty because he throws so many pitches per inning. And, you know, that that sort of long man mop-up type guy is usually – that's the guy where it's like you got to dip into the pen early, maybe like the third or the fourth, and you want a guy you can consistently get two to three, hopefully serviceable innings out of. And you know Ponce de Leon, even when he's effective, he throws so many pitches. I, I I'm not sure I see him profiling for a, a good role in the bullpen either. And he's someone where, you know, as you said, I don't even know if he's a good fit for mop-up duty if they're behind by a lot maybe they don't care but if they get up by a lot and they want to soak up some innings there's some risk to turning to Ponce de Leon as they showed you aren't going to find a game where you have a more comfortable lead uh, than the second game against the Nationals when the offense just went off and and gave you a football number on the scoreboard and uh, Ponce de Leon wasn't even able really to comfortably uh, put that game away. And so you have to wonder how confident Mike Schilt is in handling uh, Ponce de Leon at this point in time and giving him innings uh, because he's looked just flat out bad. Um, John Gant has not looked particularly good. Uh, when you read some of the uh, writers, they've celebrated his ability to get out of jams. But, you know, he has had so many base runners, Ben. Yeah. You know you know what kind of pitchers get out of jams? Pitchers that get into jams in the first place. <laughs> That's right. And there's a, you know, the old phrase, when you play with fire, you're going to get burned. And uh, 
with John Gant, you just don't see someone who can consistently make pitches. And that's how he gets into jams. And, you know, so far this year, he's been able to get out of them. But, and I don't think he's going to continue to allow base runners at this clip. If he does, he's going to be out of the majors at the end of the year. But it's just hard to imagine him continuing to strand runners at the rate he is doing so now. But nonetheless, the team appears prepared to move forward with him as the number fifth starter. And what do you think about that, Ben? I mean, on a, between John Gant and Daniel Ponce de Leon, I would also keep John Gant in the rotation if, you know, out of those two. Gant, Gant's changeup is a, is a really legit, high-quality pitch, I think. And I feel like he does get a sufficient number of swings and misses on his fastball. He just his he has very little command. Is that that's my assessment of John Gant? Is you know one plus pitch, one you know good pitch, but but no command, and and that's a that's a pretty fringy, um, you know, kind of place to be. So. Um, you know, I would keep him there. Um, of course, they've also said that Johan Oviedo is going to be returning soon and moving into the uh, a sixth starter role and going to kind of a six man rotation. Which, as we talked about last time, I, I, it's not that I'm against doing that, but it just to me the priority would seem to be to take some of the load off the bullpen, and so having another uh, pitcher in the uh, you know on the roster who's, you know, just starting every, you know, to, to have five days rest. I, that's a little surprising to me. But um, Oviedo is a pitcher that I'm really, I'm pretty high on. And I was pretty high on him last year as well. Um, and so uh, it, it was, he had a really weird spring. He didn't make that many appearances and they weren't talking about him a whole lot. So I kind of suspected, well, maybe he's injured or maybe there's some kind of behind the scenes issue we don't know about. But here within a couple of weeks, he's kind of, you know, resurfaced and, looks like he's going to be joining the rotation. And if he pitches the way I, he has and the way I expect him to, when they go from a six man rotation down to a five man rotation and assuming that uh, miles Michaelis isn't ready, then I would certainly move Gant out at that point and keep Oviedo in. I don't know. What, what do you think about Oviedo? So Oviedo is someone uh, who I would lump, would have lumped together with Ponce de Leon and Gant. He, he walks a little bit too much. He's not as, as right. walk prone as a Ponce de Leon. Um, and also I just didn't think he had the repertoire to come in and be a major league starter. Um, he looked like a bullpen arm to me because he could bring the heat. Um, and if he can, pare down his arsenal to one complimentary pitch that he could manage. He could be an effective reliever. Um, but what he has done, and this is the human element, right? This off season, he just went and worked. And there was uh, a lot of, of good questions and answers that he provided after his appearance against the Brewers. And he said, I just went and every bullpen I threw, I tried to throw every pitch I throw for a strike. And so that I could get a feel for them and a comfort level with them and command for them. And the pitcher who came out and pitched against the Brewers, I, he was not the pitcher that we saw last year. He was a better pitcher and there was a noticeable improvement. His stuff was crisp. He was putting it where he wanted to put it and he was getting players to expand uh, their concept of the play and chase pitches. But he also has good enough stuff 
that he was creating mm-hmm. holes and swings when he was on the plate. Uh, yeah. He still had the two walks, which again is a is a red flag that you have to watch. Um, but it's one start. Uh, you hope that with the confidence and the ability to deploy those pitches, uh, he's going to feel better about attacking hitters, and hopefully that'll change his approach and reduce the walks. So that's the thing you have to wa- watch. Um, and there was a good post on Viva Albertos that was breaking down the spin rate and movement on his pitches uh, from last year compared to this year. And there's been improvement on that front as well. And so what they have is they have a pitcher who shows a lot of promise now. And I think it's good that they are looking at getting him into the rotation mix. And hopefully he's able to pitch well and make it a a legitimate uh, contest between him and Gant, um, you know, pending Michaelis coming back. Well, and I'll tell you the the other reason that I would be uh, that I'm watching Oviedo more so than those other two, and I agree with you. I think coming into this season, you know, you you felt like yeah he was kind of in that Ponce de Leon Gant sort of range, but uh, Oviedo is 23 years old, uh, John Gant is 28 years old, Daniel Ponce de Leon is 29 years old. So you know, Gant and Ponce de Leon, I feel like they're they're kind of finished products at this point, and this is. This is more or less who these guys are. Oviedo has a lot of potential room for growth. So, um, you know, he's somebody who I, I expect to continue to get better. And and you highlighted some of the ways that he's already doing that. So, um, yeah, so I'm kind of excited about that. Um, how do you feel just about, I mean, they really, we, we saw a little bit of how this uh management of the the pitching staff is going to happen i mean the first week or so they just kind of rolled with the you know the the guys that they started the season with but we've started to see now this idea of dealing oviedo in and and uh whatnot i mean how do, how do you see this evolving going forward um i think they're going to go with the pitcher who can give them the most innings and is being the most efficient i think uh, with how they're managing things and juggling things uh, right now, they're trying to, in a way, I think rekindle a competition for the starting rotation um, mm-hmm. under the guise of a six man rotation, which they have been floating um, before this. But I think they were hoping that Gant or Ponce de Leon would give them a legitimate reason for a competition uh, but Ponce de Leon has been kind of the worst version of himself uh, on the mound, and that version is not a pitcher you can run out there every fifth or sixth day in, or game in, in Major League Baseball. And Gant, frankly, does not look like that type of a pitcher either. Um, you know, he's giving up pretty hard contact, uh, and the base runners, as we've discussed, is high and his velocity, which is understandable, uh, is down compared to when he was a reliever now that he's starting. And so he's looking like very much a stopgap starter. And so I think what you're going to see is they're going to use the six-man rotation uh, during these stretches where they've got a lot of back-to-back games uh, without off days. And they're going to use that to try and hold down the innings pitch total for everyone. Um, But I think the real issue is that the pitchers they were counting on 
the Jack Flaherty's, the Adam Wainwright's, they're not going seven innings. Right. They're going, they're still only going five or six and they aren't being very efficient either. And it's really curious to me because, you know, they have this new baseball and the seams are creating more drag and the pitchers have commented positively about these new baseballs. And so, you know, even with them supposedly cracking down on pine tar and foreign substances and those types of things, you would think with the better seams that the pitchers would still be able to put the ball where they want pretty closely to what we hope they would be able to do coming into the season and, and what they were forecast to do. But we have not seen that. And, you know, the Cardinals pitchers, especially the starters have just been really inefficient this year. And so I, I wonder how they're going to juggle that middle part of the bullpen as much as I wonder about the rotation, because it almost feels like they need to start going in with a piggyback plan when they've got some of these guys on the mound. Yeah. I, I, a piggyback scenario would make more sense to me than a sixth starter would at this point. And, and especially, you know, having guys like Ponce and, and Gant, you know, be, be guys who maybe it was just, you know, I mean, to me, John Gant actually profiles pretty well as a, a piggyback, like a one time through the order pitcher. Like, I think he's somebody that could fit into that where you've got another starter whose innings you want to keep down or whatever. And you, you more or less piggyback Gant and, and, you know, in hopes that he can get once through the order. And if he's really off that day, you just, you go to the bullpen a little bit sooner, but um, yeah, I agree. Um, anything else on the rotation or should we uh, move on to the, you got a reader question. I think uh, Kim is a big question mark, um, and not so much because of the health, but because his peripherals last year uh, were not that of, you know, a frontline starter. The ERA was, you know, very good, um, but right. it was also over 39 innings. Uh, you know, he didn't walk a lot of guys, um, mm-hmm. but he also didn't – strike out many guys either. And so, yeah. you know, I'm not saying he's going to be bad, but right. uh, I think there's a lot of similarity to Miles Michaelis coming off his first season where he had this very low and shiny ERA. And there's mm-hmm. just not much reason to believe he's going to go out there and repeat his batting average on balls in play, repeat his left yeah. on base percentage and repeat yeah. his home run rate. And what do you have when those normalize a little bit or regress? You're going to have a high three, low four ERA pitcher, which is not bad, um, but it's not great either. And then you also have a guy who, you know, has not had a huge workload throughout his career, but, you know, he could still get you to, to you know, 150 innings maybe this year. Yeah. Yeah. No, I... I share your concerns about KK and his peripherals. The The one thing that I'm kind of, I hold that hope on is that we've seen a number of pitchers who have come out of Japan and Korea who th- this is their game. And this is just a little more what the game looks like there in general. And so um, I just, I feel like we've seen more of these guys 
um, with the kind of, you know, low velocity, uh, you know, give up, you know, lots of contact um, type pitchers uh, as, uh, you know, as KK. We've seen that profile be successful. I, I remember actually years ago, I was at a Dodgers game in LA and this was when a Kazi she was pitching for the Dodgers. And, and he was one of the relatively early, you know, uh, pitchers from Japan to kind of come over. And I was get frustrated because he just, he walked two or three guys and, you know, and, and I think he eventually walked the bases loaded and I was just getting frustrated. And this like old timer that was sitting next to me said, you know, what I like about him is this is his game. He's not going to give in to him and throw him a strike. And he was, you know, he's totally right. He, she's just, just spinning garbage up there. And, you know, he would, he would put a guy on rather than, uh, you know, give him a fat one to hit because he knew that they, they would hit it. And he just hoped that over time enough innings would work out where they, you know, swung and missed or made weak contact on enough of his garbage that he, you know, he got out of the inning. And I'm not, and, and he and KK aren't, uh, you know, hundred percent comps or anything like that, but you do see that style of pitching and there's just, there's guys who can make it work. And so I'm hopeful that KK can, you know, given his really long track record of success in Korea, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll definitely see. So, Oh, he's one of my favorite pitchers to watch because he brings yeah. something different, uh, to the ballpark yeah. than what you're used to seeing. And, and he really has an idea of what he's doing yes. out there. Like he knows what his stuff is and he has a game plan for how to utilize it. He's a pro and yeah. it's, uh, it shows he knows what he goes out there and he has a game plan and he's going to implement it. And yeah. it, oftentimes leads to long fly balls. Um, (laughs) But when you have Tyler O'Neill and Harrison Bader roaming the outfield uh, and now Dylan Carlson, uh, although O'Neill's on the IL right now, but um, you know, when you have, and so is Bader, but Carlson is good. Williams is good. Edmund uh, is okay. So yeah, hopefully, let's, let's not, hopefully, let's not talk about Dean. <laughs> <laughs> Dean, yes, right. Um, but hopefully, we don't have many uh, adventures in the outfield for Kim like we had uh, for the pitching staff today in the getaway game against the Nats. Yeah, oh, yeah. Less said about that, the better. So, um, so moving on, we had a, a really interesting reader question this week. We wanted to spend some time on, and uh, this came from uh, Mark Garasha. So, Marks, thanks for sending this in. Um, and his question, he said, on Sunday, the Cardinals had their entire outfield in the last three spots in the lineup with Molina hitting cleanup. To me, it seems like Molina has no business hitting fourth for any MLB team, let alone a playoff contender. How rare is it to see a team have their sixth through eight or seven through nine in the order all be outfielders? I'm not even going to comment on where Carpenter's been hitting lately. And how important do you think batting order is in terms of success of a team? So Ben, I thought could, if you would maybe take the last part first and talk a little bit about the importance of batting order. Yeah. So one of the things that Sabermetrics has really looked at is uh, the lineup construction question and the findings. I'm going to overly simplify them. Uh, I'll use this as an opportunity to advise everyone. If you have an opportunity Uh, and you have the disposable income, I recommend buying the book. Uh, It's called The Book. It's about baseball advanced stats. And there's just a lot of really interesting information in it. Um, And uh, it's very useful and and informative. And if you're looking for something to read 
during the season or in particular in the off season, it's, it's thought provoking and a good read. Uh, but what the research has shown is that on a game to game basis, lineup means very little um, in terms of generating runs. Uh, what you're looking at is sort of the cumulative effect of how you structure your lineup. Um, and you, not surprisingly, you want to get your best hitters plate appearances. Um, but what the research has shown is you you want uh, those hitters uh, earlier in the lineup. And, you know, some people will say bat your best hitter second, some say fourth. It really depends on power because it does, it is beneficial to have a high power guy in the cleanup spot um, over the course of the season. Um, I used to, when I was in high school, I coached my little brother's traveling team. We used on base percentage and our thought process was this, you want to turn the lineup over as often as possible. And the best way to do that is to give the guys who get on base, uh, as many at bats as possible because they're going to get on base and then the hitters hitting after them are going to see more fastballs as a general rule. And that helps them be better hitters because they typically struggle with the curveball a little bit more, whether it's recognition or whatever. And I think you could apply that same uh, approach to the majors and be pretty successful. And I think Schilt is to an extent this year with Goldschmidt batting second and Arenado batting third. And I think they were hoping that those two getting on base would mean DeYoung would see more fastballs and that would allow them to leverage his ability uh, to hit for power a little bit more. Yeah. Well, and then I'll jump in on the idea about outfielders hitting at the end of the lineup because that's the kind of historical nugget that always interests me. And uh, I, I do think it's an interesting question. And I actually had sort of noted that and, and wondered about that as well. And, and even though, uh, be, you know, batting order doesn't have a big impact on the success of a team, we know that teams basically set their batting order so their worst hitters hit at the end of the lineup. So what I think Mark's question also gets at is it's not even just about the, those spots in the batting order, but it's basically – you know, how many teams have had their three outfielders be their three worst hitters? <laughs> um, it's not something that you would have very often. So I thought I'd go and I'd look back at uh, the Cardinals um, over the last 10 to 20 years just to see what has that looked like. And on baseball reference, you can look at the lineup history each year. And so I looked at who was at least the got the most at bats in those um, six, seven, eight spots each year. Cause nine is, has always all for all these years has been the pitcher. So I'm just going to rattle these off real quick. So this is your six, seven, eight hitter most often for the last 10 years. So last year it was Molina Carlson, William. Oh no, sorry. That's this year. Mo, this year so far has been a uh, Molina Carlson and uh, Williams. Um, Last year, Molina, Carpenter, O'Neill. Uh, 2019, Molina, Wong, Bader. Before that, Jerko, Bader, Wong. Then Diaz, Grichek, Wong. Then Molina, Jerko, Wong. Then Molina, Wong, Borges. We're kind of going back there now, aren't we? We're getting some yes. names from the past. It's really going to get weird now. Peralta, J. Ellis. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, right? And then uh, Freese, J. Cosma. And then in uh, 2011, it was uh, Molina Descalso Green. Or actually, maybe that was 2012. I got to double. I might, I might have my year off there. So anyway, so that's 
that's the last 10 years. And I look back the last 20 years and you've never seen all three outfield spots hit down there. And the other thing that when I look back, what I really noticed is, and again, this, when we just think about how we expect the type of profiles that different players have, you, you have a lot of up the middle players there. So you have a lot of catcher, second base, shortstop, center fielder. In fact, every year that you look back of the last 10, two of those three players at least are up the middle players. The one exception is actually last year when you had Molina, Carpenter, and O'Neill. So you had a catcher and then a corner outfielder and a corner infielder. Um, so, uh, you know, yeah, if you had three outfielders there, now your center fielder is an up the middle player. And so you have, you know, that that's not so atypical. But to have two corners, you know, and two outfield corners there, it doesn't, it doesn't bode super well, I would say, for for the team. If in fact those are your you're going to be consistently your three worst hitters. Yeah, and you make a good point about how lineups are typically constructed and how positions are typically filled. Um, teams value defense at catcher. Uh, famously, Tony Larusa said Yadier Molina helps this team win when he doesn't get any hits, right? Or if he's hitting below 200. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, center field, very important defensive position. Shortstop, very important defensive position. And so, you know, Cesaris Turris, I'm sure, uh, was down around the eighth spot in the lineup when he was on the Cardinals. Um, and they signed him for his glove, and that's why he played. Um and then the corner positions typically have more power and more hitting prowess. And the Cardinals are doing something weird because I think Dylan Carlson, and we talked about this, I took him second in the wins above replacement draft in our uh, debut episode. Uh, Cause I think he's probably the second or third best hitter on the team. Um, you know, wins above replacement includes fielding and base running. Mm-hmm. So the, the total package, I thought he would be uh, number two on the team. And so I, I don't think with the way that Edmund is hitting that he will ascend to the leadoff spot, uh, but I would not be surprised if he cracks a few more singles and a few more doubles and a few more homers and see that, sees that batting average climb a little bit uh, if Schilt is installing him in the fourth spot. And I also think that makes some sense uh, because it breaks up a little bit of the right-handed monotony and it uh, it allows the Cardinals to put the other manager in a little bit more of a difficult position when it comes to late inning relief decisions. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, one other thing I wanted to share from my research as I was looking back over the last twenty years, uh, two thousand eight was the one year that uh, Tony really committed to the pitchers hit eighth thing. So here uh, were your leading. Uh, hitters in the number eight slot for the St. Louis Cardinals in 2008. Number one, Braden Looper. Number two, Kyle Loesch. Number three, Todd Wellmeyer. Number four, Joel Pinheiro. Number five, Adam Wainwright. And number six, Brad Thompson. That's Joel Pinheiro, Ben. Joel, you're right. I apologize. Um, And Uh, uh, Todd Wellmeyer, Kentucky Colonel, if I remember correctly. Yeah. You know, and I know some people like the whole pitchers hit a thing, but I just listed if, if those are the names of your top hitters in your number eight spot, I don't know. That doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel good to me. 
No, uh, with Bader though, I think it makes sense. Um, and I also yeah. think with the way the, the, the Cardinals uh, lineup has been not necessarily churning very much and the pitchers, right. the starters not really going deep, it almost makes more sense for this team than it did for any Tony La Russa team uh, ever. So it's yeah. something I, I would love to see come back, but uh, maybe not uh, under Schilt. Yeah, yeah. So, uh so uh, the last thing we were going to kind of touch on today, uh, so today was, or well, I say today because we recorded this the day before the off day, of course. Um, so uh, today in my current reality was uh, Yadier Molina played in his 2000th game, became the first uh, catcher to play 2000 games all, all with the same team. So uh, Ben and I thought it would be kind of fun to look back at his very first game which was on June 3rd, 2004. Um, ben, I've got the I've got the box score open here. Do you have it open as well? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm getting it open uh, right now. I want to make sure that I've got no. Oh. Yeah. So so he so this was a Thursday, June 3rd, and I don't remember the exact. I'm thinking Matheny must have gotten injured because Yadi got a, a long run of starts when he came up. So. I'm thinking that um, that must have been why he came up um, at that moment. I don't remember that for certain. But um, the game was uh, at PNC Park in Pittsburgh. Uh, let me uh, let me run through the Cardinals lineup here just to kind of take you back in context. So leading off, we had Tony Womack, second baseman. And that is some good early 2000s lineup construction there, isn't it? Well, I remember going into spring training, the Cardinals didn't really have a leadoff hitter or a second baseman, and they acquired Womack, and he was immediately installed. Uh, yeah. And he it, it was really old-fashioned, because they even had him stealing bases and stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I said early 2000s, because that's when this was, but this is definitely more of an 80s or 90s thing. Put, put the fast second baseman at leadoff. That's just you know, a Cardinal rule batting second. One of my favorite Cardinals, uh, Edgar Renteria. Uh, love that guy. Uh, batting third, uh, they went with Albert Pujols that game. So that's probably a good spot for him. Uh, fourth, Scott Rowland, <laughs> fifth, Reggie Sanders, a pros pro, just a great yeah. player and all, good all around guy. I Reggie Sanders is one of my favorite players. Uh, and he is one of those guys where when the Cardinals signed him, I was just uh, over the moon. And I remember yep. saying to my mom, if they just would have signed him instead of Tino Martinez, we might have won the World Series before now. <laughs> I agree. I, I always link him with Ron Gant in my mind because they were both like fairly built guys. But they were also guys that like I was a big fan of before the Cardinals signed him. And then I was very excited that that they acquired him. So so Reggie Sanders was there in the fifth spot. Now this it turns out that this year is not the only year that the Cardinals have had outfield issues because next up was a starting left fielder Hector Luna. <laughs> Hector Luna, Rule Five draft pick, who I really thought might turn into something, and they gave every opportunity to, and and just didn't really. But he was a useful bench player. Uh, oh for yeah, two thousand four team for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely a useful bench player. And play, I mean, he played second and third as well as outfield, didn't he? Yeah. I don't know if he ever played shortstop, but yeah, he had a useful guy, but kind of like, you know, frankly, Tommy Edmond and some of the guys this year, it's 
a guy you, you don't necessarily want to see him penciled in as your starting left fielder uh, every game. But there he was. Next up uh, in the uh, seventh spot, uh, we had Yadier Molina, catcher. Uh, so he did get the start in that first game. Uh, batting eighth, So Taguchi. One of my favorite Cardinals of all time. Uh, my great regret in life is that I, I never purchased a number 99 jersey authentic to the time uh, when he was a Cardinal. Uh, he came up through the minors. They signed him kind of after Ichiro madness took hold uh, mm-hmm. in America. And uh, he came up through the minors and then made the big league squad and just right. – uh, he he well, is a think, Cardinals or a Cardinals fan Cardinal, if that makes sense. One hundred percent. You you say came up through the minors, but it's important to remember that Sotaguchi was already fifty one years old when the Cardinals signed him. <laughs> yes. So he had played an entire career in Japan, and then uh, and then and then came over. But yeah, totally one of my favorite players too. So much fun. And then he hit that home run in the two thousand six NLCS, which I I I mean it was a great moment, but I also felt like. Because he was such a fringy player, I'm glad that he had a really significant moment for us to always yes. remember, too. So, um, yeah. And on the bump for the Cardinals that night, uh, one of my favorite pitchers, although I wonder if I went back, if I would, if my feelings of him would have been changed about knowing what I know now about pitching, because he is a man who would not fit into today's, uh, today's atmosphere of what you do with a pitcher, but that's Mr. Woody Williams kind of the poster child for a Dave Duncan pitch to contact reclamation project, really the best case scenario for that. Um, <laughs> well, he, but I always liked Woody Williams. Well, I remember, you know, it's, it's fun that Ray Langford is in this lineup with him. Cause this is when uh, Langford circled back to the Cardinals after the Cardinals yep. traded him for Woody Williams. Yep. And then Woody Williams, of course, famously in the postseason, he would go toe to toe with Randy Johnson uh, in the postseason and really go pitch for pitch with the big unit. And mm-hmm. you know, it was so much fun to watch. Uh, he he was one of my favorite Cardinals pitchers as well, still is. Um, and uh, it's a real treat that he, for me, when I looked at this box score, that Woody Williams started. Uh, Yadier Molina's uh, first game with the Cardinals. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned Ray Lankford, and Ray Lankford actually did come in uh, as a pinch hit replacement for Hector Luna later in the game. He he walked in his lone plate appearance. And I'm looking now at his his line at this point in the season. And again, this was, was this the, I think this is the very last season of Ray Lankford's career, wasn't it? I believe so. I think this, yeah. So at this point in the season, Ray Lankford was, uh, his slash line was, 266, 383, 435, which is just a deliciously Ray Lankford, <laughs> you know, slash line. Just that giant on base percentage and slugging. And just, he was so, like, if he played today, people, I mean, everybody would be all over what a great player he was. But he just, because he didn't rack up the absolute highest number of, of home runs and RBIs and stuff. He didn't, he didn't quite register then, but man, you look back at Ray Langford and what, a, I mean, I loved him at the time, but I think we appreciate it even more now. Oh, absolutely. I, I was a huge Ray Langford fan. You know, the, the nineties were not kind to us. It was easy to be a Ray Langford fan in the nineties because he was the only good player on the team yes. for what felt like about five years. Yes. <laughs> and and he was really good. 
and he was the total yeah. package uh, in a way that not a lot of players are nowadays. Right. Um, right. And I don't. You had Ray Langford, Milt Thompson, and Geronimo Pena. That was the entire <laughs> team. And Luis Alisea. Yes. So. <laughs> oh man. Uh, so uh, what else? Anything else about this game stand out? To you, Ben, to kind of take a look back at it. Well, I, you know, I really enjoy uh, the uh, Scott Rowland hit a double, Edgar Renteria hit a double, uh, and you know that just feels like a very 2004 uh, thing to have happen. Uh, but the relief pitchers as well, uh, I got a kick out of because we had you know, you can see all of this taking shape and the double switches and the moving, uh, of outfielders. So, so Taguchi started in center, uh, but then Tony pulled Reggie Sanders for Ray King and so moved to right. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Steve Klein also made an appearance and Julian Tavares made an appearance before Jason Isringhausen came in. But then he also used Jim Edmonds, who is on the bench uh, as a pinch hitter, uh, which uh, also necessitated Sotoguchi's moves. And you can just see what I really love about the box score is I can see this as a scorebook in my mind's eye, you know, keeping score of this game with a pencil and just how much of a Tony Larusa managed game this mm-hmm. is from 2004, yeah. and it's just a wonderful artifact. I agree. I feel like I'm Salieri going through the compositions of Mozart here as I look at the <laughs> Tony Larusa, like just what he did in this, just this you know random like middle of June game. But every move is so brilliantly like thought out and it's like a Swiss watch, all the pieces fitting together. So, (laughs) and he has a good team so that it, the plan works, you know, the plan comes together uh, because this is the A team and it's, uh, it's really fun. Uh, The other thing that jumped out to me, you sent me a video of Yadier Molina's first hit. And he was wearing number 41, which I always know, but then I forget until I see a highlight. And seeing him with a double number, it makes you do a double take because he's number four. He's going to go in the Hall of Fame as number four. And number four is going to go on the left field wall. But when Mm -hmm. he first came up, he was number 41. Yeah, yeah. And, And he looks like a baby, too. I mean, we, we remember young Yachty, but this is this is pre young Yachty. This is like, oh, my gosh, that's a that's not even an adult man right there that it looks like a child has put on a grown ups baseball uniform and gone up there. And yet, of course, he's singled and doubled in the game and, and I'm sure caught an impeccable game as well. <laughs> yes. And it's uh you're right. The it's also very striking from that um, from that highlight reel how young he is, and you forget, you know, he has since matured into a man with many tattoos. Yeah, and it's yeah. sort. Of- oh yeah, the tattoo count is decidedly lower. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you sort of forget, um, you know, these. Uh, how young he looked and. You know, because we have, you know, we're close in age to Yachty and we've kind of aged together. Um, and it was just kind of like, oh, wow, we're all really old. 
um, yeah. <laughs> when, when seeing a picture of him now. And I know that if I tried to catch even one inning crouching in a catcher's position, I probably wouldn't be able to get up. Yeah, I was uh, coaching my son's baseball team tonight, and one inning when our catcher had ended on base, I went out and you know caught the pitcher to kind of warm up for the next inning. And uh, my knees weren't thrilled about that, you know, and I, I probably caught about eight pitches. So um, <laughs> yeah, that video, too, of, of Yachty's first hit, uh, the, it's up on YouTube and uh, it's got Mike Shannon's call along with it, which is which is great. And uh, the, the best part of which is at the end, Shannon quips, uh, well, it's his first big league hit. It only has four thousand plus to go. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, of course, and, you know, they knew this guy is, you know, the third in line from this, you know, catching royalty family it's not like there were expectations for Yachty or Molina but even so and even with you know Shannon making that joke I mean obviously no one would have expected 2,000 games and over 2,000 hits and just the you know sterling career that he has put together Uh, or the evolution into MVP caliber hitter Uh, you know and going and looking at the trajectory of his career in 2006 you know, even before he hit the home run that made him, frankly, probably a Cardinal for life in the NLCS, I, you know, you kind of wondered if he was going to be a starting catcher um, yeah. because his offense was quite bad uh, that well, year. Well, and, and I think it's also important to remember that he came on the heels of Mike Matheny, who came on the heels of Tom Pagnazzi. So we had a good, you know, 10, 12 years where we had basically been acclimated to the idea that our catchers are not allowed to hit at all. You know, we just did not have particularly good hitting <laughs> catchers. I, Tom Pagnazzi, I think, was actually an OK offensive catcher, but the, they, they were revered for their defense. And so it felt like Yachty was at least to me, it felt like Yachty was very much just going to be the next evolution there. Like absolutely impeccable defensive guy. But, you know, probably like a, you know, 220 hitter with, you know, nothing, nothing much to show for it. Yeah, he, you know, he hit uh, OK, like virtually no power, uh, but like a 260 average, 329 on base percentage his rookie year. Then he became the starter and he hit 252 slash 295 slash 358, which is a 654 OPS and is bad. But in 06, he hit 216, 274, 321 for a 595 OPS. That's a 53 OPS plus. You know, you mentioned earlier, and there are all those quotes from Tony talking about how, you know, Yachty helps us win, even if he's not hitting at all. They must have all come from that season because that that is actually what was happening. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and they were. And then he picked things up. He OPSed over, over 700 in 07. And then he was up at 740 in 08. Uh, he dropped back down in 2010. But after 2010, you know, he was a he OPSed over 800 for three consecutive seasons and was getting MVP votes and deservedly so. He was a top five MVP uh, uh, finisher in 2012 and 2013. And and I remember when Posey, you know, won the MVP and Cardinals fans were up in arms and I was angry, but it was just one of those things where they were so close. (laughs) I couldn't really decry Posey winning it over Yachty uh, because he had had a great year as well. And that's just the way it goes. Sometimes Um, I, I was much more 
offended, frankly, by some of Pujols's losses than Yadi's. But there is a part of me that will always uh, wish that Yadi had won an MVP because he was the total package uh, as a catcher, like an elite defender, plus plus defender, and a significantly above average hitter. And it was a lot of fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, fun, fun to look back on for sure. So, uh, Ben, uh, I think it might be time to kind of wind things down here. So as we look ahead to this next stretch, and I believe the next off day is, uh, April 22nd. So it's basically another week away here. Uh, what are you going to be watching for? Uh, the thing that I am going to be watching for, is Justin Williams. He seems to have kind of gotten his feet wet. uh, And I'm interested to see how much longer he is considered a starter by Schilt and what he does with that opportunity. And the reason I'm going to be watching that is I think it is going to make things more interesting when O'Neal comes back off of the injured list. If Justin Williams has been able to do something with this opportunity that he now has due to O'Neal's injury. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think I am going to be watching for how Mike Schilt tries to win close games. And we talked a little bit about today's game. You know, today was a, it was a classic getaway type game. You know, there was some, some, you know, backups in the lineup. Uh, Paul DeYoung took his first game off, etc. It's one of those things you have to do. And I think this season, especially on the pitching side, with the uh, the way they're trying to keep workloads down, I think now more than ever you can see teams are ha- you know managers have to manage for the the full 162. That you know it, you really can't you know go after every game full bore because they they just have so much they have to manage, and that's always the the case in baseball. Seems like it's a little more so this year. But that being said, you know where we kicked it off, this is a, a 500 team right now, and so I think it's going to be really important to, that. Schilt uh, is aggressive to win the games that he can win and um, knows when, you know, there's other games just to kind of let go. And, and again, just to go back to uh, Tony La Russa, I, that was something that I always really kind of admired about Tony La Russa. I thought he always did that really well. You know, it seemed like he in games that they, they could win, um, you know, he had his he always had his pieces lined up to give it, you know, give it his best shot. And um, there wasn't often in the Tony La Russa era where I felt like they were non-competitive in a situation that they should have, you know, should have been more competitive or, or whatnot. And um, and I think it's a very difficult task managing this year. And so I'm just kind of I'm interested to see some of those little choices that Schilt makes and and hopefully see them, you know, squeak out some wins or maybe, you know, t- you know, turn around a game. They're down in the you know sixth or seventh inning and, uh, you know, turn turn some losses into wins, things like that. So th- that's some of what I'll be looking for over the next week. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how the bullpen usage takes shape immediately following the starter for the reasons that you say, because if he's having to pull the starter sooner and the bullpen's getting taxed, how are they going to deal with that? And they're going to need other arms to emerge as legitimate options if they're going to be competitive uh, in games. And so all roads kind of lead back to the starting rotation 
uh, doing what they have historically done when the Cardinals are good, and that's give them six innings. That was kind of the Tony Larusa standard. You give me six innings, and I can manage this team to victory. And um, and you see it with Schilt as well. It is a lot easier to make good decisions as a manager if you are in the lead and have your pitcher walk off the mound after getting the third out in the sixth inning. Yeah, it, yeah, that's true. It just makes your job a lot easier, and the starters have not done that for him this year. But but I am hopeful that um, just they're going to have longer and longer leashes in terms of pitch counts and and just get a little bit sharper in terms of how they're you know using the pitches they have. So I'm I'm optimistic that we'll see that. But yeah, I agree. Oh, I am too. But it's it's got to come. And you know, Wainwright today, I thought he would you know be a little bit sharper. I and I keep expecting Flaherty to come out and give us a vintage performance, which he's too young to use that term, but kind of, you know, one where he is just razor sharp and on his game and we haven't seen it yet. And, you know, Wainwright flashes that now he's not with his age, he's not as skilled as he once was, but he'll turn in those games where he's firing on all cylinders and is able to go deep. And we haven't seen that yet either. So I'm with you. Um, I'm optimistic that we will see that. Um, one other thing that I'm going to watch for, um, that I had written down here and I forgot to bring it up earlier, uh, when you asked me is Carlos Martinez's velocity and how he's throwing yeah. four seam fastballs. Cause he's, he's leaning a lot more on the sinker and the cutter this year. And those are sitting in the high eighties and the low nineties. And he has dialed up to the four seamer, uh, 93, 94, a handful of times, um, but he's not uh, pumping those mid-90s fastballs the way that he once did. And so it makes me wonder what his shoulder health truly is and whether or not he's able to dial it up like that as often as he once Mm -hmm. did. And if he's unable to do that, he's not going to be as good of a pitcher. He's going to, frankly, have to reinvent himself a bit like Adam Wainwright has where mm-hmm. he's playing off the sinker and the cutter and using that breaking ball uh, to get batters out. And, you know, so far when he's tried to do that, he's given up a lot of hard contact. So I'm interested to see how Carlos Martinez as a starter evolves if his shoulder doesn't allow him to hit the mid-90s with great consistency. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that is a good one. I'll be... I will be watching for that as well. So, all right. Well, we're coming up. We're just a little shy of an hour here, Ben. Uh, it's been great talking to you again on this uh, Cardinals off day. Anything else you wanted to mention before we wrap it up? Uh, no, I just I have really enjoyed uh, fans in the stands is one last thing that I will say. And in particular, uh, the standing ovation for Yadier Molina and Adam Wainwright egging the crowd on and forcing a smile from Yadier Molina, who tries to be stone-faced out there. Um, But also the Matt Carpenter curtain call, where it was just this very human and emotional moment between the fans, his teammates, and him. Mm -hmm. Everyone in that stadium was very happy about that home run. And I saw a few people kind of like, you're giving Matt Carpenter a curtain call in an early inning of an April game. If you give everyone curtain calls, they don't mean anything. And I just kind of rolled my eyes really hard at that because I was like, this is probably one of the most meaningful curtain calls that I've seen 
because you have this veteran accomplished player who's really struggling at a point in his career and the crowd's trying to help lift him up emotionally. And I just thought it was a really beautiful moment. Um, and, and I really, uh, yeah. Which Cubs fan was it who made that comment about (laughs) you're giving too many curtain calls? You know, when I scroll through Twitter during the games, I always do it in a rushed way because I'm not doing it while the game is on. I kind of go through it to see if anyone has something interesting about, you know, on replay, Cardinals gives us so many good things that he does. Mm-hmm. And so I, I look for him as well, or, you know, just information about what's happening on the field with the bullpen and that type of thing. And I don't remember who uh, tweeted that out, but you're right. It was almost certainly a Cubs fan. Um, it was oh, probably yeah. it, best fan St. Louis, to be honest. It has the stench of Cubs fans all over it for sure. So, uh, but mentioning Twitter, that that is worth mentioning. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter as well. We are at Cardinals off day there. We are, uh, tweeting during uh, the games and other times sometime. I feel like I've been doing almost all the tweeting so far, but Ben, you're going to jump in there as well, right? Uh, Maybe at some point in time. Okay. Okay. Well, if you see something that's really insightful or hilarious, it was me. And if not, it was not me. So just keep that in mind. But you can follow us there. Uh, You can send us an email at cardinalsoffday at substack.com. If you haven't followed us on Substack, it's just cardinalsoffday.substack.com. You'll get updates when these episodes are live. You'll also get uh, some of the written pieces that we put out as well. So um, I think that is it for today. And I guess we will see you all next Cardinals Off Day. 